course, you got all the experiment in, in 1G uh, until the moment that you deploy the, the experiment. And even, even gravel uh, has some elasticity. And so as soon as you go from 1G to 0G, uh, you had all those effects, uh, plus some of the vibrations of the actual uh, deployment that affects your gravel and, and, and everything starts to, in, in our case, it was levitating slowly. But even the first experiment allowed us to understand better or understand some characteristics because what happened is that basically the, the, the ground um, became fluffy on a sense, very, very uh, porous, extremely porous. And of course, if you had extremely porous material in the ground, then your uh, lander sinks completely. And that's what we saw in the first drop. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about, uh, well, scaling space companies. And I'm here with Dr. John Pau Sanchez. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. You bet. So Dr. Sanchez, is uh, he's got a doctorate from the University of Glasgow. Uh, he is a lecturer in space engineering at Cranfield University. And those of you who have heard the Florian Gauche interview uh, will know that Dr. Sanchez here is, uh, well, I won't say you're his boss, but uh, you're, you're, you're um, what's the word for it? Supervisor. I was supervisor. his supervisor while he was here at Cranfield, right. yes. Right. So I thought that was a really neat connection. And that was, for me, coincidental. I didn't plan that out at a lot. Uh, so let's, let's start off with something here that, that I came across that was interesting. You were one of the first people to publish a near-Earth orbit asteroid map with some ideas about mining them, bringing them in for, for resource gathering. And this was well before uh, deep space industries and planetary resources were, were talking about doing that. How did you come up with that as an idea? Um, yes, we uh, so we have been working on on uh, low energy uh, transfers, which means uh, transfers that require very little delta v or, or capabilities, propulsive capabilities to actually reach different objects in the solar system. And so we realized that uh, many asteroids were uh, could be reached with uh, tiny, uh, very small delta v's. So, um, uh, and Basically, for many of those can be reached much more easily than the moon itself. Um, and so just discussing, we realize of the potential for mining. I mean, we have been, or there has been talk about mining asteroids for a long, long time from the very beginning of the space uh, age. Um, and so uh, as a postdoc, and that was my first year as a postdoc, uh, one of the first thing I wanted to do was to actually check in, an, in a more, in a statistical approach, what is the amount of mass that is available at a given delta V. And terms delta V at the end is equivalent to the energy change or the energy necessary to, rate, to reach a place. Um, and so that, that was the thought there, just uh, understanding um, what's the promise for asteroid mining, um, rather than computing particular transfers to particular asteroids, um, because those might exist or not depending on the launch date. So the, the, the actual, um, the date in which you are gonna launch, but understanding from a more statistical point of view then allows us to understand if there is actually a potential or potentiality on, on asteroid mining. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, a slightly different approach too to uh, to how to get there, and almost more statistical than than individual. Uh, we're going to pick this specific target. Okay, I'm going to read something from your LinkedIn profile here, which I found interesting, and ask you a question embedded in it. Uh, so you talked about some new rich families of exploitable orbits, which may enable radically new mission applications and services. What are some of these? Why haven't these orbits been used before? 
Well, I mean, um, as we improve our uh, knowledge, the mathematical uh, knowledge on how to describe orbits and compute them, uh, take into account um, different perturbations and, and accelerations, um, then we are able to compute uh, more families of, of orbits. And with these orbits, meaning a periodic orbits, so an orbit that closes, or if doesn't close, uh, it's close to closing, so it stays on a bounded area, so it remains on a, on a region. Um, and and so it we we become or we are able to compute new families of orbits with improvements on on the mathematics of astrodynamics, so the way that we calculate orbits. And so once you are able to compute a new orbit, then you might think about applications for those orbits. And an example could be, for example, recently there has been talks about uh, putting a lunar gateway, so a space station in, in near the moon, in something that is called a near a near rectilinear allo orbit. Mm. So again, this is a allo orbit, which has been known for quite a while, but uh, once you uh, increase the energy of this allo orbit, then re you reach a new family or subfamily of allo orbits, which have a special um, uh, set of characteristics. And so then you might think about um, uses of that orbit and the gate, lunar gateway came, came up through that. Or the, mm. the use of near rectilinear orbits came up through this. So that's an example of new rich families or new families. And you can think of many um, also in, in orbiting the Earth, for example. Um, if you think about the geostationary ring being overbooked, then you might think about a geostationary ring that is uh, displaced on out of the equator, so that uh, like a second floor of the geostationary ring using a um, low thrust device as a new acceleration. So then you can, um, using um, the mathematics to describe these orbits, you can come up with new families of orbits and then their applications. But that's what it means, that sentence there. Okay, so different orbits have different characteristics. That's, a, that's an interesting thought. Um, so if we're gonna go geostationary, we tend to be further out um, from, from the Earth. Okay, what do you think about the current sort of, it's almost a panic about cluttered Earth orbit. Uh, I see a lot of social media artwork, infographics and things like that, spreading this idea that suddenly we're gonna get into this Kessler syndrome uh, danger situation, which I've had a um, senior space government official tell me is absolutely not afraid of a Kessler syndrome happening. And I tend to agree. But, uh, you know, we are going to be putting up tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of small sats up there. Is there any risk at all about this or is it just kind of silly? No, there is. I mean, <clears throat> um, so we certainly we need to understand or to make sure that when we deploy new missions, and um, there is a there is an understanding on the uh, potential um, issues with actually overpopulating a given uh, orbit and then having issues with regards to uh, space debris. And so we need to make sure that those orbits are, um, or the use of those orbits is sustainable. And the same with particularly some orbits that are, um, that are, that are very useful, like not just the geostationary orbit, but also, um, for example, sun-synchronous orbits. Sun-synchronous orbits are also very, uh, Pretty much used and and, 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 and overbooked, and so that the risk is is in those. It doesn't mean that from um, today to tomorrow we may have some sort of uh, you know like a gravity movie, you know, um, in which some sort of um, um, cascade of impacts that will just uh, make an orbit unusable. Um, but more that we need to make sure that in the future and in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years we understand the sustainability of those orbits and we don't peril, we, 
we don't put those orbits in, on perion. Um, so that's that's a, that, that that's the meaning of that. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about a new program for you. It's called the Comet Interceptor Program, and this is through the ESA. It's something that you're working on. Tell us about that. Yes, so Comet Interceptor is, is, is a new mission, uh, was selected recently, and it was uh, um, end of yeah, July, mid, mid next year, last year, 2019. Um, uh, ESA, uh, so the European Space Agency, selected this new mission uh, within their uh, new um, mission program called uh, FAST uh, Mission Call. Uh, fast meaning that um, from selection to launch uh, will be less than 10 years of development. So for this uh, particular mission should be launched in 2028. Um, and so th they put this call initially and so a bunch of, uh, I think there were about 20 something um, submissions, if I don't remember wrongly, 20 something submissions of uh, mission, um, they call it mission ideas, but now this is not just one page of uh, of a guy just writing some crazy stuff about a mission. This is our mission proposals with uh, a lot of work behind of a very large group of scientists and engineers describing how the mission will work and so on. And so um, our proposal was called Comet Interceptor, which is, um, and the idea here is that, um, because one of the characteristics of this mission call is that um, um, uh, another mission is a mission called um, Ariel, it's gonna be launched um, it's going to be launched with this uh, M5, uh, M4 mission. M so the medium-sized uh, mission uh, from ESA is going to be launched to the L2 point. And we are going to be uh, piggyback on, on that, on that uh, launcher. We are going to be launched to L2 and then we remain there. And then our proposal is to stay there for a while until we discovered a uh, comet, a type of comet that we have not yet visited, uh, which is, uh, those are... Um, um, hyperbolic comets or, or new um, new comets, new long period comets, which is, are the first time that pass through the inner solar system. And so uh, the idea is then to um, to use the propulsion system of the spacecraft while we have remained in L2 and the, in the Sun-Earth L2 for a while to actually reach the comet and then visit it for the first time. By visiting here means a very fast flyby on the order of uh, somewhere between 30 to 40, depends on the comet, but it could be up to 70 kilometers per second flyby. And, uh, and then understanding the differences of um, these comets, the comets that are the first time that they pass through the inner solar system with, uh, and, and how they compare with other comets that we have visited, which are comets that have uh, passed through the inner solar system many times. Um, and that will answer many questions about uh, the evolution of comets and, and so also the evolution of the solar system. Okay, so you send this vehicle out to Lagrange Point. It has to sit there for some period, maintaining yeah. some level of power and communication back to Earth. And then it has to power up and do a burn <laughs> to go somewhere specific after that. How, how long do you estimate it might have to sit there for? Is this months or years? Well, years, years, yes. Somewhere uh, between uh, probably one to three years. That's the... Okay the thought here. Um, yes, it will, it requires, um, so in fact, my specialty is uh, astrodynamics and trajectory design. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and particularly things like multi-body problem. Um, and so I can say that, um, yes, it, it requires very little Delta V to actually being a station, keep, a station capture mm -hmm. or keeping a station keeping L2. 
Um, so it depends on the orbit and depends on many things, but um, in the order of 10 to 20 meters per second is, is, is eternally uh, plenty, um, which is, is very little. And one thing that often I see people confused about is the fact that uh, they say or they think that the L2 is unstable. Typically, it's well known that the L2 and orbits around L2 are unstable. And therefore, if this meant that it requires a lot of delta V again, so the propulsive capability, um, in order to be kept, a spacecraft to be kept there. But in reality, um, we require less delta V to be kept at L2 that for a geostationary spacecraft to be kept at the geostationary ring in their own slots of the geostationary ring. And so um, the issue with the instability of the L2 means that if you have, uh, say, a failure in your propulsion system and you cannot do the station keeping, then it means that you actually drift away and you go somewhere else completely different, so you stay there. That's the main thing with instability. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. Other than the uh, instability, possible you know possible issue there are there any other problems that could come up as it sits there for one to three years <clears throat> no apart from the station keeping um well and, and, and potential failures of uh, different things but it should be um i mean um not not specific with this mission so waiting there for a number of years shouldn't be a uh, a big problem. One of the issues is going to be uh, to decide to what comet and, and when we're going to mm -hmm. be uh, actually departing because you only have one shot so you need to decide well. So you might have a, a, a okay a comet coming up and, and you may uh, be tempted to wait a little bit longer or just to go ahead with this one so that that's what wanna, it's going to be one of the challenges of the mission just to to uh, to be sure that we we uh, we decide or we pick the best option. And another very interesting thing of this mission is that we might have a chance also to fly an, inter an interstellar object. So there have been uh, so far uh, two interstellar objects discovered. And, and so with LSST, the new uh, survey and telescope, um, we might discover um, uh, some uh, one or so every year statistically. And so we might have a chance to actually we have a good uh, target to visit, uh, so a, a good interstellar object to, to visit, and that's a bonus for the mission. Eventually, it could be the first mission going to an interstellar, interstellar object. Okay, so you will do a flyby with this, you will not land on it. Uh, what sort of information do you hope to, to pull? And is this, this is going to be transmitted back to Earth, to a ground station, I take it? Yes, so um, actually another of the novelties of one novelties of this mission is that this is it's not just one spacecraft, it's three spacecrafts. Mm. So um, it's going to carry three spacecraft, a mother craft and two daughter crafts, that we call them. One is provided and designed by JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, and the other two are um, provided and, and operated by, by ESA, the European Space Agency. And so each of the spacecrafts will, once we uh, are close enough to the to the comet will separate and will follow a slightly different paths and they will then um, be the first it's going to be the first mission that takes um, in, um, simultaneous uh, measurements of the different characteristics of a comet um, um, simultaneously over the flyby in different positions uh, in this way we will be uh, able to understand the physics behind the evolution of the coma and the evolution of the, 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 the comet uh, much better and um, well, we, we carry a bunch of different payloads, scientific payload, um, and, and 
in, in the different spacecrafts, from obviously cameras to magnetometers, etc. So um, uh, yes, so one of again one of the nice things of the mission is that it's going to be three different spacecraft flying at the same mm -hmm. time. But again, we cannot land because to land uh, it will represent massive delta v, but impossible because these objects are moving very fast. Uh, but we can pass very fast around there, so that's what we are going to do. Okay, and what kind of propulsion method are you thinking of? Well, um, it keeps on changing. Initially, uh, it was uh, chemical, then it went to low thrust. Now it's back to chemical. Um, uh, probably. Um, so now ESA. So now we are what what is called a phase zero. So it's um, it's the beginning of when uh, ESA has selected the mission, and we start understand uh, or starting designing properly <coughs> the mission. Mid twenty twenty, we will. Um, uh, the phase A will start, in which um, then you start uh, designing in uh, in detail each part of the mission, and in there we will start um, finalizing the decisions of what sort of propulsion system we are going to use. Um, <clears throat> the chemical propulsion system is seen as um, suitable and the low performance of the two options, but the because one of the issues also with this class of the mission is that this is relatively low cost uh, compared mm. with other interplanetary missions and that ESA has launched. The, the budget for this mission is 150 million euros, so it's quite little for an interplanetary mission. Uh, I think that a medium class in ESA uh, is about 500 million, so it's substantially smaller than a medium class. Um, uh, although here we don't need to pay for the launch because it's provided anyway for the, the other uh, mission bigger mission <clears throat> so um, yeah at the moment is, is chemical propulsion but it might go back to uh, low thrust or even hybrid propulsion so combining the benefit of the two uh, so we'll see how it uh, evolves the design I mean this is a long-term thing here it's eight years until the planned launch assuming there's no delays or anything like that yes. and it's got to travel out to L2 and then wait a couple years and then go out to the object which could take much more time as well and then give you the data back and so we're looking at what you know 15 years maybe yeah potentially the whole uh, mission lifetime yes um but it's it's, it's a standard with many missions mm -hmm. from the beginning because this is again this was selected last year so we are in in, in phase zero so that's the very, very beginning of, of mission lifetime, um, and in which we are in the preliminary design uh, phase of the mission. Um, and yes, it takes many, many years. Rosetta, again, Rosetta was a much longer mission, uh, uh, and well, it, 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 it took from very, very long. The same with Bepi Colombo and many other ESA missions, and, and, and the same happens with NASA missions. Um, so yes, typical for a, a an interplanetary mission. It takes many, many right. years. Right. The, conceptual design, the conceptual thought of the mission to the actual end of life of the mission. Mm -hmm. So you have to wait quite a long time to find the results <laughs> of your baby. <laughs> this is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it, right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? 
and, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side, folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company and that has gone on for a little while six months a year something like that and it is time as uh, COVID has made it to double down or get out those are pretty much the choices right it's time to invest further in a thing we already know which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or or stop just kill the project and so the good news is in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for cold star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So. If this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire? Or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. Well, let's move from um, a flyby to actual uh, landing on things. You and uh, Florian Gauche uh, worked on a project about landing CubeSats on asteroids. Tell us about that. I'm interested in, in your point of view on this project. Yes. So uh, one of the questions we had, um, and that came from previous work of, of of mine um, was if we were because one of the things we were doing was computing uh, um, ballistic or ballistic landing opportunities for for uh, asteroid uh, exploration. By ballistic means that basically you can have a motorcraft uh, um, orbiting um, at a safe distance with the with the asteroid, and and this is key because often when you reach an asteroid you don't really know the the shape and the, the gravity uh, that you will find there, the gravity accelerations you will find when you're close, you are far from the Earth, so um, um, you cannot really control my, say, joystick, so you're going to have a controller just uh, understanding what's going on at every single time. And, and so often you spend many months uh, just flying in, in information with the asteroid from very far away. <clears throat> and, and, and you would like to get very close to the asteroid in order to start understanding the asteroid, understanding the gravity, and so on. 
And so one uh, potential solution for this issue uh, or to speed up this process would be to deploy some uh, cheap spacecraft, uh, you could say, for example, a CubeSat. And then we were investigating how we could actually land a CubeSat without uh, control, without propulsion system, so that you basically could just deploy a, a scientific payload. Um, and, one, and then we realized that there were ways to actually land in asteroids uh, with, that allowed us to actually touch down at very at slow velocities in the order of tens uh, centimeters per second, which wouldn't jeopardize the, the actual integrity of the payload uh, at touchdown. Uh, but the main issue was um, the amount of uh, energy that you would dissipate at touchdown. Because if you don't dissipate much energy, uh, it could be that you bounce off the system completely and you don't come back, or you bounce around and you end up on a shaded area on, on, the, on the asteroid. Um, and so that was a critical. And so that's why we thought about the experiment that, that uh, we already discussed uh, with Florian. Um, uh, to have a little bit more understanding about what's going on on this uh, touchdown. Uh, so how is the interaction between the lander and the surface on, on, on an asteroid. Okay, and you worked at a facility I was reading about here. This is new to me, the ZARM drop tower in Bremen, Z-A-R-M. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a tower basically. Um, uh, it's about 150 meters, uh, but I don't remember exactly, but it's about that um, tall. And basically it's a tube uh, which gets, uh, um, it's when just before launching the, the, the experiment, it, it gets in vacuum so that in order not to have much uh, air drag. And then you deploy from the very top uh, a capsule where you've got the experiment and everything. And then it is allows you to give um, about, your, uh, about four point something, 4.5 seconds of, uh, of um, microgravity conditions, a very actual, very um, good quality microgravity conditions in the order of 10 to the power of minus six uh, Gs, uh, which is much better than what you can get uh, generally on, on parabolic flight, for, which is the other way to get microgravity conditions. Um, uh, but of course, then the capsule reaches the ground and you need to slow it down somehow. <laughs> yes, and so in, in ZAM, then at the very bottom, you have a kind of a pool of, uh, of pellets, basically, that allows you to, uh, to uh, slow down uh, the, the capsule. But it's still everything inside the, the experiment is to survive somewhere between 25 Gs to 50 Gs of deceleration. Okay. And, and is this where you notice things like the consistency of your fake asteroid didn't quite stay together the way that you yeah. thought it would? Yes, so yes, initially one of the issues was that, uh, of course, you got all the experiment in, in 1G uh, until the moment that you deploy the, the experiment. And even even gravel uh, has some elasticity. And so as soon as you go from 1G to 0G, uh, you had all those effects, uh, plus some of the vibrations of the actual uh, deployment that affects your gravel and, and, and everything starts to, in, in our case, it was levitating slowly. But even the first experiment allowed us to understand better or understand some characteristics because what happened is that basically the, the, the ground um, became fluffy on a sense, very, very uh, porous, extremely porous. And of course, if you had extremely porous material in the ground, then your uh, lander sinks completely. And that's what we saw in the first drop, for example. Um, so you can, and then also with what we saw in the following drops, uh, we had seven in total. Um, you can start uh, building your intuitive uh, understanding of 
what are the effects uh, when you touch them and, and gives you a lot of insight on how, what's going to happen and what also what has happened with with Philae, the Rosetta Lander, and the touchdowns also from uh, Hayabusa. Um, so yeah, it was very successful uh, experiment altogether, even the unsuccessful uh, attempt. <laughs> Right. right. Well, I, you know, and I, I love hearing about all these different studies all over the world. Uh, there's folks making beds of, of lunar material to simulate what that regolith is going to be like. Um, and, and this is just as useful. And so I'm curious how you get this knowledge out. Uh, the two of you were working on uh, your, your paper for submitting it, I guess, for journal publication. Tell us about that process and where you're at. I mean, as far as I know, this ended like a day or two ago. Yes. Um, yeah, we, we submitted recently. I think it was yeah uh, last week. Yes. Um, um, so b basically, the way to uh, disseminate the results. Uh, well, uh, we have uh, gone to different conferences and we have presented the results. Um, also, I mean, the people who are working on this uh, on these um, particular problems. Uh, um, they, they saw those, uh, the, our work and, and we actually got contacted by some of the people, for example, working with Masco Lander uh, that was deployed by Hayabusa 2, um, just to understand a little bit more our results and, and share that, that knowledge. Um, and we recently, we continued working on that document and the, 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 the final description of all the experiment and the results and we submitted recently to Arctic Astronautica. Now, <clears throat> what's gonna happen is that uh, this gets uh, peer review, so reviewed by uh, two to three uh, reviewers, which are gonna be also scientists working on the field. And then we receive uh, the, 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 their reviews on an anonymous form, so we don't know who they are. Um, and then we need to uh, reach uh, sufficient um, quality of uh, standard of quality of the publication before we get uh, we get published. But uh, I'm confident that the paper uh, is well written and has very good results. So should be, right. Uh, okay. And so with this study, you've learned quite a bit about uh, microgravity and how to land a small satellite on a. Uh, an asteroid, which is a weird thing, right? It's not a, it's not a boulder flying through space. I think the general public needs to understand it's often just a mash together, held together um, by low gravity forces, uh, mishmash of, of different materials in that. Uh, and so you've learned, okay, if we come in and, and we don't know how to slow down or, or we don't hit too or hard enough, um, the thing will just bounce off and we'll either fly back out into space or land in a place that's uh, hundreds of meters away from where we wanted to, and it's not useful for what we wanted to find out. What is the next step? Is there a next step in, in research on this? Um, yes. Um, so now at Cranfield, for example, we are uh, working on, on guidance navigation and, and control algorithms for, for the lander, potential CubeSat landing, um, uh, which should be able to uh, interpret um, their, or understand its own position and, uh, and then um, understanding what's the path that is following and doing some uh, prediction of where it's gonna, it's gonna fall. And potentially then either transmitting this information to the model craft or even taking some decisions about some controls or the controls are still not, uh, because with such a small um, um, gravity, so you are in microgravity conditions again, um, 
any small error on the percussion system might 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 not be <laughs> might be difficult then to contract. So um, so it, it is an issue. That's why we were trying to do ballistic landing, so just that mm -hmm. you drop it, and you. But one of the things that are is needed for the future of exploration of asteroids and, and just the future of interplanetary missions in general is is autonomy. Autonomy meaning the capability of the spacecraft to uh, mm -hmm. understand its position, its velocity. And take decisions about about it. So if it's not on the right path, um, then uh, perform some correction maneuvers. Uh, uh, up to now, all the interplanetary missions uh, had very very little autonomy. So typically, the autonomy that you had was more on the, for example, the landing of of a of a of, of a lander in Mars that should have had to be autonomous because of obvious reasons, because you cannot really control it on those minutes that is falling and so on. But, uh, and, and, and you can see the challenges. So many, many um, landers have actually crashed rather than land uh, because of uh, that lack of, uh, because of the difficulty of having an autonomous vehicle that is able to respond mm -hmm. well. So the same with, uh, with asteroids, uh, asteroid exploration. Um, we have had very little autonomy on, on, on asteroid exploration. And especially if you want to have uh, very low cost missions like CubeSats uh, flying, um, you may have some, you might need uh, some autonomy. And Comet Interceptor, for example, we might have some autonomy in some of the daughter crafts. So the smaller spacecraft that will accompany the main mother craft of Comet Interceptor. Um, and that will be one of the first times for, for such a mission as well. Right. Yeah. And this is, a, this is an issue I've known about and I've been writing about for maybe five years. Uh, you're not going to have a human pilot out there. That's very unlikely. And the distances are so long. Again, I'm saying this for the, the general listener. Um, you cannot signal the thing to change direction or something in time as it's flying towards a, a comet or an asteroid or something like that. It has to be able to make that decision itself. And so in order to do that, it needs a lot of data. It needs a good simulator. It needs to understand the math very well about what's going on around it and be able to do some predictions and <laughs> come up with the right course of action. Let's talk a little bit about algorithms here. Um, I, there's a thing called the traveling salesperson problem in, uh, in active debris removal and servicing of satellites. I guess you're not going to service a CubeSat, but maybe larger. What is that traveling salesperson problem? Let's let this be our education portion. Yeah, so, um, well, the travel settlement problem is, a, is, is, is the problem of, uh, is, a, is an optimization problem, is a, is a paradigm in, in optimization, a, a classic optimization problem in which you have a, a salesman that needs to go to a, a group of cities and you need to find, so the salesman needs to find the optimal path to minimize the total distance travel. So you can only go to one uh, city once and then you need to link city after city. And then the problem requires you to uh, find out which is the minimum distance path, so the way to go through all of the cities with a minimum distance. Um, up to now, in a space, um, I mean, this problem by, its, by itself didn't have much to do with uh, space because when you were launching a spacecraft, you were going to one single place, so either one single planet or one single asteroid or one single orbit and staying there. So it didn't have much to do with, uh, so space trajectory design didn't have much to do with uh, with um, traveling salesman problem. But in fact, with the new missions uh, now, um, uh, some, some missions are getting a little bit more uh, um, daring. Uh, and, and so they are, they, they, we are considering doing uh, different approaches. So for example, recently we also submitted a, 
a mission proposal in ANISA, and previous to that, there was also a mission proposal in by for NASA, um, uh, which was uh, similar, which is was to send a, a spacecraft that instead of going to one single asteroid, goes to tens, um, mm -hmm. ten or more. Um, and so there you got the same problem. So then is when you build this, uh, the need to, in a space also to find uh, a way to minimize the distance. In this case, you don't minimize the distance because you don't care that much the distance in, in, in and when you are traveling around the solar system, but more the delta V, so the total mm. cost of propellant. Um, and, and it's a bit more complicated in space because here the asteroids that you might want to visit uh, are moving actually. So cities do not move, but the asteroids do. So it's a bit more complicated. And um, there are other similar problems in space now, like for example, I'm going to several debris um, and to remove them and, and Leo or Geo, or going to several spacecrafts to actually um, um, to, uh, to, to do uh, on-orbit servicing. So um, yeah, so th that's one of, in fact, we have now running a project uh, together with Airbus, uh, Airbus uh, Defense and Space, uh, of investigating um, efficient algorithms to uh, come up with solutions for this uh, space-related uh, traveling system problem uh, for different types of problems. And, and so, yes, now, now it's, it's a relevant, so it's very relevant to investigate ways to uh, find out the best ways to, to, uh, to uh, design trajectories that go to many places in a space. Okay. And, and do you think that these algorithms can be developed without the help of supercomputers? Yeah, well, that's the, the key thing there because in a, well, more than, you, you, um, you need to find ways to compute um, feasible solutions, good solutions, uh, very fast. Mm -hmm. so it's different than to find the very optimal solution. In, in a, for a space mission design, you might not, or you might want to find the very optimal, the, the global optimal, um, but that not, might not be that relevant. You said uh, before that a launch might be delayed. And so if your mission relies on one single um, opportunity that requires one single launch opportunity, then you, you, you have an issue there. You, might, you are very likely to fail. And so you might, the whole mission might not be developed because it's, it is seen as very risky. So what you really want when you're doing uh, preliminary mission design is to come up with many different solutions as best as possible and in a very fast, fast way. Because later on, the space system engineering will, the, the space system engineers might actually change some of the parameters of the mission, mm -hmm. like for example, the amount of propellant that you have, or the, the capabilities of your uh, thrust, uh, the, some requirements with regards um, the communications and the communications operations and so on. So it might change something and you will need to run again the same search and find new, uh, new trajectories. Um, and so you, you, what you want to have is efficient algorithms that allows you to find many solutions uh, as fast as possible. And you don't want to have, uh, ideally you don't want to use supercomputers. You want to use standard, perhaps some clusters, some good set of uh, uh, power stations, but uh, not a massive supercomputer. Okay, how how far away are we from that, or is that a reality today? Well, you can you can have good solutions, and, and, and generally you have. For example, there is a, a very interesting exercise that is run every year, year and something, which is the uh, GTOC, which stands for Global uh, Trajectory Optimization uh, Contest or Competition, uh, which is sort of a um, uh, American's cap of optimization, trajectory optimization, 
in which uh, every every so often there is a problem that is advertised, and then a bunch of uh, different teams try to come up with the best solution, and and then the winner um, uh, organizes the next uh, event, which generally happens one year after. And there has been many of these sort of problems that have been proposed before, and. There were many interesting solutions and very, very, very good solutions that were uh, submitted. So we do have the capability to come up with good solutions, but there is always room for improvement, especially if you want to uh, be able to have uh, very um, flexible algorithms. So algorithms that can tackle uh, as many different problems as possible. So in that regard, yes, there is a lot of research to be done still. Okay. Well, let's finish up then uh, with this question. What What are you looking for, Dr. Sanchez? What are What is the future for you? What What is of interest to you? Um, well, <laughs> I guess I have many interests. I expect, I hope, to continue having a lot of fun doing space uh, research, which is uh, basically um, why I'm, I'm, I'm in the business uh, or uh, in academia. I, I just have a lot of fun doing all these things. I, uh, I hope that uh, Cranfield and my research group continues developing uh, the GNC, the guidance, navigation, and control uh, for small spacecrafts. And I hope to have the opportunity to launch or to be involved in, 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 in a mission, perhaps Comet Interceptor or, or, or smaller um, CubeSat rocket missions, and which requires to actually um, um, put on board these guidance and navigation algorithms and actually see them working and uh, hopefully working uh, correctly. So that's that's what I, I hope I'm uh, hoping to see in the future. All right. And, and if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Email, the university email or LinkedIn. I'm easy to find in, in LinkedIn as well. So, yes, probably these two are the best. All right. Dr. Joan Powell Sanchez, thanks for being here today. Thank you again for inviting me. It has been a pleasure. This is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released, and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio-only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists, and so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats, and I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening.